0: need a few minutes to reset great minds is a podcast from sbs that guides you through different meditation styles from around the world listen wherever you get your podcasts you're with sbs radio find more great stories in your language at sbs.com.au
3: Yama, welcome to Night TV Radio. In the program today, well, a series of vigils and rallies have been held across the country in honour of the life of Nunga teenager Cassio Stavi. The 15-year-old died after being beaten with a metal pole while walking home from school with friends in Perth last month. Community members and the public have been calling for justice, and as you'll hear, political leaders at all levels of government have also spoken up. In your program today we also turn our attention to a new book masked histories by torres strait islander historian Leia luigi vidze masked histories celebrates the remarkable torres strait islander tattoo shell masks that were taken or traded by europeans throughout the 19th century through the book masked histories lea luigi vidze advances a vivid new history uncovering the profound importance of the turtle-shell masks to all islanders and revealing much about the people who created them. In the program today, we also learn about a new plan to preserve koalas. We'll hear how scientists have devised a new program involving drones and infrared technology. All this and many more coming to you on NITV Radio after the latest news. Patron bye I am Bertrand Tungandami.
4: Australia Day 1972 saw the
1: first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended.
4: And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came.
1: I am sorry.
3: In revelation, NT officer who shot dead an indigenous teenager should not have been allowed to join the police force. A new report finds vulnerable people were fell in the New South Wales flood response earlier this year, and former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan, stable after being shot at a protester rally. An inquest has been told that the Northern Territory police officer who shot dead indigenous teenager Kumanjai Walker in 2019 should not have been allowed to join the police force in the first place. It's been revealed that Constable Zachary Rolf failed to disclose in an interview panel he had pleaded guilty to a military charge of theft and had been put on probation for two years as a result. Psychologist Dr Bruce Van Haften, who was on the panel, has told the inquest he would have assumed Mr Rolfe's omission to disclose the information was deliberate and deceitful and it would have likely resulted in his application being rejected. The inquest has also been told Mr Rolfe had been rejected by the Queensland Police Force for failing to disclose he had been in a public fight in Townsville in 2011. Thousands of people have gathered at rallies across the country to honor the life of Nungatin Cassius Tavi. The 15-year-old died after being beaten with a metal pole while walking home from school with friends in Perth on October 13, with his death sparking claims of racism. At the Perth gathering, Cassius' mother, Michelle Tavi, has said her son speaks to her every day and asked her to read out his Grade 3 report card.
4: This demonstrates his willingness and self-motivation to succeed. He said, I want people to know my name. It's happened in the most tragic circumstances, but no one will forget Cassie's Turvey."
3: If you need support, contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or the Suicide Call Back Service on 1300 659 467. A Human Rights Watch study has found pregnant women, people with a disability and older residents failed to receive adequate flood warnings in Lismore this year. Researcher Sophie McNeil says authorities did not account for marginalized groups in their emergency response and she is urging the federal government to make at-risk people a priority during their disaster planning. The report was based on 23 interviews from least flood survivors and raised concern about flood warnings, evacuation and rescue support. Stressed locals in the New South Wales town of Forbes are bracing themselves for what is expected to be the worst flooding in 70 years. Around 1,000 people have been told to evacuate to higher grounds as the overflowing of Lachlan River creeps towards the 108 mark, metre mark, a level not reached since 1952. The evacuation warning is one of 22 emergency alerts issued across the state. Emergency service volunteers are also undertaking preventative sandbagging and door-knocking on the Murray at Albury where inflows from the Kiowa River combined with increased outflows from the Hume Dam are expected to cause moderate flooding. Over the border, a school on the Victorian side has been ordered to evacuate over concerns about the integrity of a nearby levee. Emergency Victoria has told anyone in or near Kundruk Primary School in Wodonga to leave immediately as the surging Murray reaches its peak. Has been revealed a second group of women and children with family connections to ISIS will soon be repatriated from refugee camps in Syria, this time to the state of Victoria. The federal opposition has accused the government of political games on the group's return, alleging that their return is being deliberately delayed until after the Victorian state election at the end of November, which Labour is expected to win. Liberal leader Peter Dutton has told the Channel 9 network the repatriation has also been done without consultation.
1: The job of the government is to make sure that Australians are safe and not introduce into the system... An element of risk, and they've done exactly that. And the Prime Minister stands up and says, well, they don't deserve to know anything. Uh, uh,
3: Deputy Prime Minister Richard Maltz says the opposition's claims have no basis.
1: All the decisions that we are taking uh, are based on the the, the
4: best national security advice. Um, Those who have come back have been thoroughly assessed, being very closely monitored, and we're making sure that all of this is happening in a way which, which does keep Australians safe.
3: The federal government says it is working hard on plans to reduce violence against women and children. Social Services Minister Amanda Risworth says the government is aiming to reduce, to release specific targets and timelines for action plans to eliminate gender, gendered violence within a generation. Mr. Risworth Ries, says the government is working with various jurisdictions on how those targets might be achieved.
4: One of the good aspects of this plan is working with states and territories to make sure our investment is coordinated, but I can tell you we are working with a sense of urgency to get this work done.
3: Supporters of former Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan have gathered outside a hospital in Lahore where he has been brought after being shot at a protest rally. The 70 year old Khan has undergone surgery at Shaukat Khanun Hospital, with Dr. Faisal Sultan confirming Khan is in a stable condition.
4: Imran Khan was brought to this hospital. I am happy to tell you that his health condition is stable. We did his emergency evaluation in which we did X-rays and some scans. We found bullet fragments in his leg. The bone of another leg is a little chipped.
1: One
3: person has been killed in the shooting, while nine others, apart from Khan, have been injured. The violence has raised new concerns about growing political instability in Pakistan, a country with a long history of political violence and assassinations. Japan has lodged a diplomatic protest following North Korea's launching of a further three ballistic missiles this week. The country's defense minister, Yasukaza Hamada, says the missiles were launched eastwards from inside North Korea's territory and fell into the Sea of Japan outside of their exclusive economic zone. He says there has been a chain of rapidly escalating provocative acts by North Korea, with Japan regards as a threat to its territory – this is region and the international community.
1: As this also contravenes the resolutions of the UN Security Council, our country has strongly protested and condemned North Korea through our embassy in Beijing. <laughs>
3: The United States has also continued to protest the missile launches, saying North Korea is breaching multiple United Nations resolutions. U.S. Representative to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield says they have sought an urgent Security Council meeting to discuss the situation. Indonesia has accused Myanmar's military rulers of being responsible for a lack of progress on an association of Southeast, Na- Southeast Nations Brokat Peace Plan. Foreign Minister Retno Marsudi says the plan includes engaging in constructive talks, access for humanitarian aid and a special ASEAN envoy, but the junta is not doing its part to move things forward. Myanmar's generals have been barred from high-level ASEAN meetings since last year when the army outstayed Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi's elected government, detaining her and thousands of activists and launching a deadly crackdown that has given rise to armed resistance movements. Ms Masoudi has previously said the regional group has done what it can, what it can to progress the cause of peace in Myanmar and the rest is up to them.
4: We
2: believe only with the engagement of all stakeholders can ASEAN facilitate the dialogue. The problem in Myanmar can only be resolved with the people of Myanmar. Therefore, dialogue with them is very important. Only after that can ASEAN fulfill its duty as a facilitator.
3: Ukraine is is responding is responding cautiously to reports that Russian forces are likely to abandon their foothold on the west bank of Ukraine's Dnipro River. Russian-installed deputy civilian administrator of Kherson region Kirill Stremusov has, ra- has said in an interview with the Solovyov Live, a pro-Russian online media outlet, that it is likely our units, our soldiers, will leave for the left. Eastern Bank. The move would represent a massive retreat and potentially a turning point in the invasion. But Ukrainian authorities say they are worried about signs that Russia is abandoning the area and are still fighting in case Moscow is setting a trap by feigning a pullout. Two days of talks have begun with two top with top diplomats from the world's major industrialized democracies in the Group of Seven bloc. The G7 talks in the western German city of Munster are focusing on taking stock of the situation in Ukraine more than eight months since Russia invaded the country, exacerbating food and energy shortages and the ripple effects far from Europe. The meeting comes nearly a year after the same G7 nations, the United Kingdom, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan and the United States, banded together to warn Russia of massive consequences if it went ahead with plans to invade Ukraine. EU High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, Jose Borrell, says they're horrified to see what has happened in the interim. Russia's Putin, or Putin's Russia, is destroying Ukraine. They cannot occupy it, they cannot win in the military, in the battlefield, they cannot win the war, and they are destroying the country systematically. Kenya has deployed troops to the Democratic Republic of Congo in a bid to end decades of bloodshed and combat the M23 rebels' insurgency. The seven countries of the East African community agreed in April to set up a joint force to fight militia groups in Congo's east, with UN peacekeeping forces increasingly under fire. Kenya's deployment is proceeding without international funding, which would have required an official mandate from the UN Security Council and the African Union. President William Ruto says both groups have given tacit backing to Kenya. It is our collective responsibility to keep our region and our continent safe. And it is our responsibility to confront criminals, terrorists and all negative elements, including armed groups that terrorize our region. And back home, two debt collection agencies will front today's hearing of the Royal Commission into Robodebt to provide details of their involvement in the scheme. Representatives from ARL Collect and Milton Graham will give evidence as the commission investigates how scores of welfare recipients were falsely accused of owing the government money. The illegal program recovered more than $750 million from nearly 400,000 people. And to sport, the former partner of an indigenous football player has decided not to take part in an AFL investigation into allegations of racism at the Hawthorne Football Club. Her lawyer has issued a statement saying she's not taking part because the inquiry lacks independence, is unduly rushed and is not culturally safe. Someone facing allegations of racism during his time as Hawthorne coach is Alastair Clarkson. Clarkson is now coaching North Melbourne and says he's determined to clear his name.
4: The, the minute they are just allegations and we're, uh, we're going to defend ourselves pretty, pretty strongly in, uh, in the investigation and um, like anyone in this, in this world, um, until the allegations are proved, you should be able to get on and live your life.
3: And having a look at the weather around the country. Broome a partly cloudy day, 33. Perth, mostly sunny, 24. Adelaide, partly cloudy, 20. Melbourne, much the same, 18 degrees. Hobart, partly cloudy, 19. Albury-Wodonga, mostly sunny day, 19. Canberra, cloudy, 19 degrees. Wollongong, a shower or two, clearing, 19. Sydney, similar conditions, 21. Newcastle, possible shower, 23. Brisbane, mostly sunny, 25. Townsville, partly cloudy twenty-eight, Keynes partly cloudy thirty one, Alice Springs sunny day twenty three, Darwin a possible shower or storm thirty five degrees, and the Torres Strait islands a partly cloudy day ahead and a top of thirty-two degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. <laughs>
2: NITV Radio, on radio, online and mobile.
3: Coming up next in your program uh, this Friday, the 4th of uh, November, well, we we'll look back at the numerous vigils and rallies that have been held across the country in honour of the life of Nunga teenager Cassio Stavi. In the program, we also turn our attention to a new book, Masked Histories, celebrating the remarkable Torres Strait Islander turtle shell masks that were taken or traded by Europeans throughout the 19th century. Today, we also learn how scientists have launched a new plan that will involve drone and infrared technology to help preserve koalas.
2: NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook.
3: Over the last few days, there has been an outpouring of grief at a series of large vigils honouring First Nation's teenager Cassius Turvey, who died last month. Here, a participant in one of the rallies in Brisbane told NITV it's unacceptable an Indigenous teenager can be murdered while walking home from school.
4: Throughout the whole nation, and particularly throughout the world now, Cassius Turvey, his name is imprinted, and that's power to the Turvey family, and that's power to his mum. You just have to spend two minutes listening to his mum and the way that his mum speaks love and power to who we are as First Nations people, but more importantly to our children and young people. You know, I'm wearing this top with what she's been pushing every single day um, since Cassius was murdered, which is kids matter because kids do matter. Um, How we got here and with all these beautiful people is the fact that people have come together and she's been able to voice that and voice that power with her message that says we need to come together, we need to unite We need to remove any exclusivity and we need to make sure we're creating a space for our children and young people to feel safe. These children and young people are absolutely everything and to think that walking down the street constitutes being murdered by a white racist, that's something that we're not condoning and that's something that we will never ever support and there's an onus and responsibility on the legal system to play its role and to do its purpose but the reality is for our black children that purpose doesn't always happen and that reality tends to not be the case for our First Nations young people.
3: Across the nation, community members are mourning the loss of his young life and they're demanding justice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Political leaders have also spoken up. Stefan Cossetti reports.
2: Supporters of Cassius Turvey want the country to remember his name and his lively spirit. The Perth boy died in October, 10 days after he was allegedly struck with a metal pole while walking home from school. In Melbourne, cousin Sam May read a statement on behalf of Cassius's mother, Michelle Turvey.
1: We know from the early days that Cassius would be a shining star. This was easily seen by his family in the way he smiled. He laughed the way he cared about others. Cassius was a people lover who treated everyone especially and respectfully. He was jovial, kind, and his heart larger than life. Rallies
2: to remember the Noongar Yamitji 15-year-old have been held around the country, including in Sydney, Canberra, Perth, Brisbane, Alice Springs and Darwin. And Australian leaders are speaking up, including Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers.
4: The thieving of a young life full of such promise, uh, I think, impacts us all. And it's a reminder that we do have a long way to go in this country.
2: At Sydney's Town Hall, there were passionate speeches from Aboriginal campaigners expressing their grief and anger over the number of First Nations people who have died in police custody or as a result of violence. There have been at least 517 Indigenous deaths in custody in the 31 years since 1991 when the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody report was handed down. The crowd in Sydney held candles and wore t-shirts as a tribute to the Western Australian teen. Indigenous campaigner Linda June Coe, who is also a Greens Party candidate for the 2023 New South Wales election in March, says she has struggled to find words to represent the gravity of the death.
4: That boy represented our hopes, our dreams, our future. And they took it from us. He represents every single son.
2: A 21-year-old man has been charged with the alleged murder and is due to face court later this month. At a vigil, Auntie Graceland Smallwood says there has been no accountability for the number of Indigenous youths who have died. I've been demonstrating
4: as a human rights activist for are probably 60 years, and my parents 60 years before that, and my grandparents 60 years before that. Uh, nothing's changed. If anything, it's getting worse.
2: The former trauma nurse says the system is letting people down with too many deaths. She's calling for institutions to develop an improved cultural understanding.
4: I've been demonstrating as a human rights activist for uh, probably 60 years, and my parents 60 years before that, and my grandparents 60 years before that. Uh, Nothing's changed. If anything, it's getting worse.
2: Rallies were held across 41 locations in Australia, with vigils also taking place overseas in New Zealand and the United States. At the vigil in Darwin, Durrumbu woman Chantelle Hartog says it is important to show support and solidarity.
4: I think definitely, not just people my age, as an Indigenous person myself um, and with siblings as well in this community, it's really heartbreaking to think that this could have been any one of us and it's not okay no matter who it is.
2: Stephanie Corsetti, SBS News.
3: Coming up next, a new book, Masked Histories, celebrates the remarkable Torres Strait Islander Tattoo Shell masks that were taken or traded by Europeans throughout the nineteenth century. Torres Strait Islander historian and curator Louis Lea Luichivizi reanimates the masks with their Islander meaning and purpose and in so doing powerfully recreates the past. So far, the islander views and interest on the masks was often portrayed from a colonial
5: perspective. The interest that islanders had in skulls was met with the interest that Europeans also had in skulls for very different reasons, yeah, as well. So that's the other thing that, um, you know, the skull of people like Pemaway was sent uh, to, you know, to, to England for, uh, for the work of, you know, the, r- the racial science people. Yeah. So the kind of the scientific theories around race and how different races develop. They were, you know, looking for the skulls of people from all over the world to kind of to further their kind of research. So, yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing that there is one... islanders and Europeans who are coming in and taking skulls, but there's a difference of ideas, difference of I- thinking about which is the better... Of the people, because of their uh, their interest in skulls. Yeah, those who are doing it for scientific purposes, supposedly, or is it islanders who are doing it for uh, potentially for cultural purposes?
3: We hear fantastic stories of cannibalism and savagery from colonial settlers and other early accounts of first contact. Yet um, these human remains served as spiritual purposes and uh, more. No. And
5: yeah, and sorry, just with the cultural purposes as well, one of the things that Haddon, the anthropologist who I mentioned before, uh, so he um, he uh, asked to talk to people about why people kept human remains, people kept... Uh, mummified bodies or mummified bodies and kept them. And one of the responses was around it's, you know, these people because they'd seen him with their, with photographs and they, you know, it's in some of his writing, he talks about how people have said, no, it's just like your photographs, but they don't use that word. It's like, this is, we've kept them in, in the, um, kept them in the way of their likeness as much as possible, because it's about having them with us Um so the skulls were kept may not necessarily have been for ritual practices. It may just have been for you know that these are these are the families. This is my family, and I want my family to stay with me. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's like, yeah, like you say, there's cultural purposes. There's spiritual purposes as well yeah. for, for keeping particular remains. Yeah,
3: when you found these uh, masks and uh, you described in very, very vivid and very powerful ways uh, these uh, the emotions uh, that these uh, masks evoke to you and fellow islanders like uh, Alik Tipoti and um, Ken Thide, I think.
5: Oh yeah, Uncle Ken. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So it's really an emotional and moving experience encountering these masks.
5: Yeah, they are. They are. There is a. There is a power that i, th- that I think that, that I think they have that and I when I've talked about this with um with Alec and also with Uncle Ken and a few of the other artists who've looked who've been in the company of these masks um that there is a uh, you can feel their presence it's, it's as though they know you are there. there is something about the power that they hold well I tend to attribute that power to their uh how they're invested in the power through the way they've been performed in and the purposes of their kind of their the purposes of their making and how they were used Mm -hmm. yeah so but on museum shelves they just sit you know mute but they're really waiting uh for people for their people yeah and they're waiting to be activated by the presence of people or the or the potentially the their use by people
3: yeah and the discovery, not discovery, but uh, telling this story and uh, also being uh, replicated. I mean, uh, you said uh, Alec himself, when you met Alec, he was uh, actually in the process of uh, uh, making a mask based on what he had seen. And this has uh, spawned a movement of younger generations wanting to uh, walk in those uh, footsteps of their ancestors.
5: Yeah, that's the... Um the shovel nose ray mask. It's interesting because I don't like people, and Alec, cho, you know, Alec chose, has chosen not to work with turtle shell. Maybe it is a difficult thing to work with, a difficult, a difficult material to work with. That's certainly something that was said by one of the men who's talked about his work with the masks and using turtle shell. But yeah, there aren't very many artists who are using turtle shell. But certainly the masks have inspired all kinds of other works and the making of different kinds of masks, I think is, you know, is part of that.
3: Yeah. In uh, one of the opening chapters, you speak about the Cambridge expedition loaded as something very successful with a very illustrious uh, researchers and so on, but there's another side to that.
5: So that's the Haddon expedition. So that's the expedition that was led by Haddon, who I mentioned before. He first comes to, goes to the region in 1888 As a zoologist, and he's interested in, you know, he's been. It's been suggested that he go there to study the coral coral reef, and then he becomes interested in islanders. He goes back to, um, he goes back to Britain, and then returns ten years later as an anthropologist, and he's committed to doing what people, you know, people have described as salvage anthropology, because his belief is that islanders will, you know, will die out. So the work that they are there to do is to record as much as they can, and to take as much as they can, so that if Islanders were to die out, at least the world will know that they existed, and um, yeah, and, there, and our existence would have been told through the eyes of of this team of um, of anthropologists, and or the team of the, the Cambridge expedition, which included at you know people, anthropologists like Haddon, but also linguists and psychologists and yeah, a number of others. And it's interesting to look at because it's told from a very you know, specific angle. They were all men, so there's very little stuff about women and women's business. It's probably the richest source of information about the Torres Strait, but it's also a source that for islanders is, is problematic people are interested, but there's also some disquiet about the kinds of stuff that is written about.
3: Yeah, because they describe people as cannibals and all that, whereas, uh, you know, the uh, amicable and actually welcoming nature is hardly mentioned, they just uh, describe as savages, just uh, bloodthirsty people, it's a horrible kind of describing of people you don't even know about, yeah. And uh, the book also tells, touches on the history, and the culture, the spirituality and uh, the mythology of uh, the Torres Strait Islander people, including the heroes like Bomai and Mano.
5: It was important to try to give the bigger picture, I think, of place, but also Islander understandings of where the masks have come from and their significance in the lived world and in the non-lived world. So, in kind of the world of you know the world of life after death, so I think I tried to layer that somehow and to give more texture and a deeper texture to um to the story of the masks 'cause it's yeah and i you know and I think others if others were to look at the same masks and come at it with it from a different angle, you know there are one of the the beauties I think of this of. Of the masks themselves and i think you know there may be over a hundred of these masks um that depending on who's writing about the mask you can tell you'll be able to tell all kinds of stories yeah they can they inspire all kinds of stories and thinking even if you look at the work of artists you you just i'm kind of in awe of how artists can be inspired by them to create the works that they that they create yeah
3: I'll come back to the title, Masked Histories, especially coming out of uh, what we've been going through in the last two years with the pandemic, mask wearing and so on. (laughs) So Masked Histories, when you first see the title, you may not really, it could evoke so many things except some historical facts. But when I saw it, knowing that uh, it's about um, the story of the islands and the history of Australia and so on I just thought yeah masked could mean well it's a story of masks, but also hidden history
5: yeah definitely that's um yeah that is what I was going for <laughs> that it's the, the it's ant- the un it's the Islander histories that aren't necessarily written of and I really wanted to to write something that I thought I think as I said, earlier I really wanted to write something that about the masks that I thought islanders might be interested in knowing about
3: yeah cultural yeah. practices that did not die that's one thing that I uh, struck my mind when I uh, just browsing through this book yeah, it's a book about uh, enduring history of cultural practices that did not did not die out when islanders were colonized that's, yeah. uh, that's what I kept in my mind about
5: this book <laughs> oh great! Yes, <laughs> and it is that you know. For me, it's also that recognizing that uh, cultures evolve, cultures change, and that's.
3: Yeah. Now, before I let you go, just a closing word: how to summarize this book? Just something we may not have mentioned that's really crucial. We must bring to the attention of our listeners.
5: Um, I think so. Really, writing it to to tell an Islander history. And to tell Torres Strait history from the point of view of islanders. And I, you know, and the masks became the vehicle for me to do this. I was quite, I quite liked a, um, a tweet from one of my colleagues when I gave a talk a little while ago and, um, and they wrote that, um, that it was, uh, that my work was taking back stolen objects from their glass casings in far off colonial museums. So, yeah, and that's, I think, what I wanted to do. I wanted to make them ours again and write about them in a way that said, these are ours, these are our masks. Yes, they might be all over the world, but they are the masks of the people from the Torres Strait.
2: Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio.
3: Welcome back. Now, koalas are a national icon to Australia, but the marsupials are often hard to identify in their natural habitat. Scientists have now launched a national plan that will involve drone and infrared technology to help preserve the endangered species. The Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation's National Koala Monitoring Programme also relies on community involvement and First Nations partnerships. Hanaquan reports.
1: Good to go? Yep. Say when.
0: Out in the depths of the Queensland bush in the northern Murray-Darling Basin region, Eric VanderDyce is operating a drone to monitor koala population.
1: And so one of the things uh, with this drone is I've got it programmed so that it's it's got a return to home point, it's found its location using GPS, it's got GPS the entire time so I know where it is, it knows where I am, it knows where to go to. So if it starts to run out of batteries and it's calculated that it's only just going to make it, it'll come roaring back here, it'll stop up there and it'll come down and it'll land somewhere near here.
0: The drone sensor allows it to land on a target. While it's in the air, it takes photos and filters back thermal imagery through a tracking device. The technology is part of a new initiative led by the CSIRO called the National Koala Monitoring Program.
1: The aim of the National Koala Monitoring Program is to enact a really technically robust monitoring program that provides a really solid estimate of the population status and trends for koalas across their range. And the aim here is to understand koalas everywhere from right up in North Queensland through to their populations down in Victoria and South Australia.
0: Senior research scientist at the National Science Organisation, Dr Andrew Hoskins, is one of the project leaders. He says even though koalas have easily recognisable features, they are difficult to monitor.
1: So they hide They sit quite high up in trees. They're quite hard to spot and hard to identify, which makes counting them and understanding what's happening with their populations quite difficult.
0: Koalas can be found throughout Queensland along the east coast, in parts of the south coast in Victoria and into South Australia. But while there's a wealth of information about koalas on the east coast, information is limited for those other parts of the country.
1: And that's one of the core challenges for the national program is to... Um, enable us to both utilise some of the the information that's coming from other monitoring programs that are are established in in smaller regions, integrate that through and collect information in some of those areas where we have key data gaps, such as some of these more um, remote and inland regions.
0: Dr Hoskins says the program will use different analytical methods to monitor the koalas.
1: This can be everything from drones through to um, using acoustic listening stations to hearing when, when koalas are calling. Thermal drones as well are a big, well, are a key thing. Thermal um, thermal technology to to look for the heat signatures of koalas, as well as more traditional methods um, and just looking for koalas or spotlighting for koalas at night. Um, we also are utilising methods that enable us to bring in some of these other more citizen science focused type data sets like set where anyone may spot a koala and be, you you know, enable them to record that that sighting and bring that into the national program.
0: And it's not just scientists who can take part.
1: We really recognise that um, everybody has a stake in understanding koalas, particularly within their local regions. So part of the methods and part of the elements that we're deploying in the program is to train and enable multiple different community groups, wherever they are, including uh, First Nations peoples, to monitor and collect for koala koala information um, effectively.
0: The CSIRO is working to develop data collection apps that will allow people to record data and filter them into the app. The federal government is investing $10 million into the program over the next four years. It forms part of the threatened species action plan announced last month by the Minister for the Environment and Water Tanya Plibersek.
2: We learnt from the state of the environment report which I released some months ago that the state of the Australian environment is bad and getting worse. We are the mammal uh, the mammal extinction capital of the world. We've seen around 100 species lost. Uh, in the time since colonisation, and we absolutely have to turn that around. If we keep doing what we're doing, we'll keep getting the same results.
0: Koala populations across New South Wales, the Australian Capital Territory and Queensland are now listed as endangered under the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act of 1999. Dr Hoskins says they want everyone to get involved in the conservation efforts.
1: Koalas are a national icon for all of Australians. As part of this, we really recognise that all Australians should be able to take part in a national monitoring program to help support the recovery of the species. So one of the things about this program is that partnerships are really one of the core elements for us. So, we really want to make sure that everybody can access the program and provide information to it. And then with CSIRO in the background, providing that really solid, technical, robust science that enables us to bring all of that information together into one source to provide these these estimates. We're really utilising the the next generation of innovative approaches to working with data, different data collection methods, and um, feeding that into supporting management and recovery efforts.
0: Hannah Kwon, SBS News.
2: NITV Radio on radio, online and mobile.
3: That brings us to the end of today's program. Berhentung and daming Air. I'm Bertrand Tungendami, thanking you for tuning in to NITV Radio today. I hope you enjoyed the program. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.
2: Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from.
5: SBS is Australia's most
2: trusted multilingual broadcaster. Our listeners are loyal, highly engaged and have supported countless local businesses. We offer advertising packages for businesses of all sizes.